Rock and roll. It's your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherbert. Welcome into the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. J.C. Sherbert here with you on a Monday, May 24th. Thanks for being here. End of the baseball regular season. It happened right here before Memorial Day weekend. Gamecocks go down two or three to Tennessee, which ended up winning the SEC East. Um, said going in, I thought Tennessee was a pretty good baseball club. Couldn't have been more impressed with the way they played this weekend. Thought the Gamecocks fought hard. After yet another Friday boondoggle, I guess is what you can call it at this point. Seems like the Gamecocks just can't win on Fridays. Uh, Came back, pretty gritty win, 3-2, then got behind on Saturday, came back, made it a game, Uh, had their chances, lost 5-4. So the Gamecocks go into Hoover, and um, the tournament in Hoover sort of – Tricky, you know, it used to be they had, you know, the top eight teams made it and it was a double elimination and all that. Well, now the top 12 make it and there's a single elimination portion and then the semis, once you get there, semi or single elimination. I guess, you know, that particular event going into the NCAA tournament, sometimes, you know, if you got all these double elimination scenarios, you have to play out, you know, sometimes maybe that impacts your pitching for the the next week and I don't know where the discussions were with it but um I think that may be why we have sort of this hybrid tournament now uh, and that's fine that's good uh, the Gamecocks typically don't do that well in Hoover over the years I think they won it in 04 and also went to the College World Series um uh, I guess they ended up being third that season because they ended up losing to Fullerton Fullerton and Texas played for it all but um you know, we'll see how the Gamecocks do. Uh, I don't think it's out of the question. This team's host. This team hosts a regional. I think it would have been a lot easier had they won the series this past weekend. Um, this poll does not matter in terms of what the committee is going to think, but Division One baseball dropped them out of the top 25, so there's some optics there. Uh, I get Kendall Rogers' <clears throat> sort of explanation. They've lost four or five series down the stretch. Uh, and that's fine. And he said that he's bullish on South Carolina going to the postseason, but they've lost the right to be ranked. And I guess that's fine. But those rankings don't matter. I mean, they don't – the NCAA tournament committee does not look at Division One baseball, collegiate baseball, the polls. They, they may glance at it, but the RPI, you know, strength of schedule, things like that play a factor into all NCAA tournament selections a lot more uh, than maybe, um, you know, maybe the, the regular polls do. But, uh, you know, Carolina's played some tough teams this year. I mean, you know, there's no way around it. You know, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, Tennessee, Arkansas, Vanderbilt, Florida, they're all among the best teams in the country. The Gamecocks are kind of right behind those guys. And uh, they did sweep Florida and avoided being swept by the other ones except Ole Miss. And, you know, we'll see kind of – what happens with this team moving forward. I've always said South Carolina baseball is determined by what happens in the postseason, namely the NCAA tournament, certainly not in Hoover. Uh, And so we'll see kind of how this group does uh, after this week, if they can get hot down in Alabama, make some noise or, you know, the following week in the regionals. Uh, I tend to think that when you look at it, 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 you know, if they host or not, it is maybe a situation where, 
as the bracket sets up, and several several of you on the Big Spur have posted this out or have pointed this out, it may be in Carolina's interest to go to a, you know, a Charlotte or, or someplace like that uh, where you're matched up with, with the 11th overall seed or, or something along those lines rather than hosting and being the 16th seed and then having to go to Arkansas for the Supers or, or Vanderbilt or, or whoever else, Mississippi State. Um, I think it's much more legit in terms of predicting a run to Omaha if, if you get to go to Notre Dame uh, or even Arizona, someplace like that uh, for the Supers than having to go face that. Ar- that Arkansas team's really, really good. <laughs> even Tennessee. I mean, yeah, th- th- those, those, those teams this year – and uh, John Whittle predicted it. Congratulations to him, by the way. He predicted the exact regular season record for the Gamecocks this year, 33-20 and 20 overall. He was a game off, or two games off with the SEC. He actually predicted 14-16 and 16 in the SEC. Gamecocks finished 16-14. and 14. But, you know, you, you look at it, and it's just, you know, Carolina returned a lot of really good players and, and had a really good roster, one of the best it's had in a while. But everybody else did too. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing here. Uh, you know, the schedule part of it, I mean, you know, Carolina and they play Alabama for the first time this year uh, over in Hoover. And that's never easy when you're you're playing the tide over there because their fans do show up them in Auburn as well. Um, you know, they, they avoided Alabama, Auburn, Texas A&M. And those three teams are at the bottom of the West. You know, so LSU was the worst team from the West. They played. They played them on the road one, two out of three. Uh, LSU is probably going to the tournament um, as a at large, but uh, you know the Arkansas, Mississippi State, Ole Miss uh, from that other division that was not an easy draw, you know. And then the fact there were you know three really good teams in the East as well with Tennessee, Florida, and uh, Vanderbilt. So it's been a tough year schedule wise, really tough. Throw in that you know they probably could have scheduled three wins instead of you know, scheduling Texas, but they didn't. And they went out there. Unfortunately, they got swept. It would have been good to have one game, but uh, they got swept. But they scheduled them. And Texas has turned out uh, after a kind of a, a rough start against Arkansas, Mississippi State, and some of those schools from the SEC, Texas has turned out pretty doggone good this year. So we'll see what happens. That's the baseball part of the show here today. Not going to be a very long show. Got some mailbag stuff to get to, so – you never know when you start talking about the mailbag uh, how how long it, it is going to go. Uh, don't forget, we're kind of on the cusp of – we're kind of in a lull news-wise right now. It's kind of slow. You know, you got baseball in the postseason out there, but, you know, recruiting is really going to start – you know, there's really going to start being some news here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, talking to some folks around the football program – they're very excited about what they have coming up. They're very excited to get some players on campus uh, to be around the coaches and to talk um, about, you know, <laughs> everything that uh, Carolina has to offer right now. Uh, and uh, that, that's a good thing because you, you hear that all the time. What does a school have to offer? And, you know, Carolina's got some things to offer, but you can't always see it when you're on Zoom or when you're just looking at uh, brochures or videos or, or whatever, and, and I think that's been good. The, the, the social media thing has been really good for the Gamecocks. I think it's night and day better um, than it was. And, 
you know, Will Muschamp and his staff kind of came in and, and spruced it up a bit. But I, I think this stuff that Beamer and his staff are doing is is next level. And, and look, it impacts kids. And, and that's the thing. All roads lead to recruiting and players being happy. And, and when your players aren't happy, you're not going to win a lot in college football. I mean, Alabama's players work hard, but they're happy at Alabama. You ever notice Alabama doesn't have a ton of transfers like you'd think they would? They just don't. Now, we'll see uh, if the new rules and the portal change that uh, because, you know, you have to sit out a lot of times. But, you know, I, I think yeah, Alabama's players, Clemson's players, Ohio State's players, uh, they're all happy. And so happy players and, you know, reaching recruits is a big part of this social media stuff that, uh, that, that programs are doing. It doesn't equate to wins and losses directly but it does have a residual effect. And I, and I think the guys are doing a really good job of that. Can't say enough uh, about it, really. You know, everything that the Beamer's done so far uh, from that standpoint off the field, promoting the program, uh, promoting the program not only to fans and, and people around the country, but also uh, to recruits uh, and current players. Uh, you know, I think that's good. I think one of the most uh, – common things I've seen the national media say about the Gamecocks here in the last couple of years is uh, that they've had this mass exodus of players or the last couple of months, not years. I'm sorry. Uh, since Shane Beamer, Shane Beamer took over and then making a big deal out of the fact that, you know, Mike Bobo, uh, Mike Bobo, real friend, Tracy rocker and um, Des Kitchings, after they were hired initially and bolted. And if you look at all those situations, you know, two guys in the, in the NFL, Rocker did go to Auburn initially, but then bolted back and went to the Eagles. Des Kitchings with the Falcons. I mean, that's just something he could not turn down. Uh, and then you, you know about the Mike Bobo and Will Friend situation. I mean, it, it was a deal where, you know, Bobo wanted more money because he was offered more money and you can't blame him for that. And South Carolina just wasn't willing to to match it, um, you know. I, I mean, I, I I just feel like that that was, you know, you, you got to pay market value. And and I like Mike Bobo a lot. I think he's an excellent play caller. But you know, would, would you rather tie up all that money with your offensive coordinator and you know skim on your support staff or not? Because the support staff is very important. You know, and I, you know, maybe you don't aren't able to go hire some of the guys you're able to hire off the field uh, if you're tying that up. Uh, and, and I think they're very comfortable with Marcus Satterfield, too. I mean, we don't know until the until things get live. You know, we're not going to sit there and be able to pick apart his play calling. You can go back in time and sort of see, well, at Temple he did this, and at Tennessee Tech he did that. But, you know, in the SEC against the schedule South Carolina plays, obviously you're going to look at Now I thought the, the spring game – Everything operationally looked really good and really smooth. Very few mistakes. Very vanilla, but very few mistakes. And um, we'll see kind of how all that goes. And so I, I didn't think that, you know, as long as the, the coaches that they replaced ended up – they replaced them with good folks, I, I didn't think that was that big of a deal. Because you, you you can find guys. you got to get guys that are the right fit. And whereas there may be an initial choice in a pecking order – you know, you're not really doing your job, and Shane Beamer does his job, you know, unless you have other guys in mind that you would be just as happy with. 
Uh, and that's just the nature of coaching. I mean, you, you, you don't sit there and go into it with, you know, we're going to have these 10 guys. And if we don't, I have no idea what we're going to do. <laughs> um, that would be bad. And so, I, 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 and that's not what happened at all. Uh, you know, he very quickly moved to fill the Bobo role. Uh, Greg Adkins is, is a guy that I've heard nothing but great things about since he came on board with the offensive line as a group. Um, you know, Montario Hardesty is a uh, up-and-comer, which I think sometimes you want that at the, at the running back spot because, you know, you want a guy that's hungry that's going to get out there on the recruiting trail. Uh, and it's hard to replace Des Kitchings, don't get me wrong. I mean, Des Kitchings is an elite recruiter and um, a guy – and people people laugh at that because they look and they're like, well, what four and five stars has he signed? Just look at the NFL guys he signed. I mean, <laughs> go with that because uh, at Vanderbilt and NC State in a short time at South Carolina, you know, he was able to go get players, and, and that's the bottom line with recruiting. Um, and then Jimmy Lindsey on the defensive line coming back, you know, a guy that Lovey Smith thinks a lot of. Uh, a guy that's from the Carolinas. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you look at his press conference, and, and, and Lindsey's very matter-of-fact. Uh, he's not going to sit there and preach a sermon. He's kind of the opposite of Greg Atkins in terms of with the media. You know, Greg really gets into it and in-depth and, and all that, and, and Lindsey's just like, well, you know, here's what we got to do and here's how we're going to do it. But, you know, you look at the returns from recruits so far – uh, Xavier McLeod is a is a young player, defensive tackle out of Camden, South Carolina, and Helma Granahan has an update on him today uh, that talks on and on about how Jimmy Lindsay's in touch with him all the time, blah, 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 blah. So all these guys top to bottom are doing their jobs, and you can read that with the recruits. And we'll see, you know, we'll see kind of how the hard work pays off uh, to a certain extent here directly. Now, recruiting is not over after June, so if they <clears throat> if they don't get – you know, if they're not sitting there with 15 commits after June, you know, don't don't freak out because you got a long way to go. This is just the initial part of it. And I think, too, you know, some of these recruits that are chomping at the bit that haven't been visiting anywhere in a year and a half, and not not I'm not this is not just a South Carolina thing. This is a a general thing. I, I think you're gonna see guys committed up and then commit to another place later. <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, people talk about the wild, wild west, and it's about to get wild. So there we go with that. Uh, anyway, get ready for some recruiting coming up. We're going to dedicate a lot of time to that here on the Inside the Gamecast podcast moving forward. So now we're just going to go straight to the mailbag. And like I said, it's going to be a short podcast today. I have some engagements this afternoon I have to get to. And just not a lot out there and I don't I don't like to do podcasts when there's not a lot out there just make stuff up but I think uh we had enough mailbag and stuff today I wanted to go with it so Mitchell or is it Mitch it's Mitchell there's a Mitch and a Mitchell so uh JC I was listening to your podcast on Wednesday about the name image and likeness question and listen to how much of important Marcus Lattimore's commitment Eventually, out of the game, Costa Legendary Clowney and South Carolina became one of the best programs in the country as a result. On the contrary, I was curious to know, based on your experience following Gamecock football and watching players commit and deep commit during the recruiting, who do you think is one player, whether it's for Muschamp, Spurrier, or any other era of Gamecock football, 
that as a result of not coming to Columbia hurt the Gamecocks in the long run as a program would have been, as the program would have been beneficial, such as McCole Hardman, uh, who was near the South Carolina border. I don't think he was committed. Carlos Dunlap was silently committed. Albert Hainsworth, I think, was committed in ninth grade. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a commitment, but a player who is strongly considering playing at South Carolina. I, I, I think I could go back in time. Uh, you know, Garrison Hurst was highly interested in South Carolina. What would what would it have been like had Garrison Hurst joined the Gamecocks? Well, probably pretty good, but I also know that the Gamecocks had Brandon Bennett at the time, pretty good back himself. Would it have just been a one-two punch? How many wins would that have meant? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, Jimmy Clawson was out there, uh, and he had ended up going to Notre Dame. He had a really good run at Notre Dame, but would the, what, what would that what would that have meant? It would have meant championships at South Carolina. I don't know because they didn't win championships at Notre Dame. They had a good offense, not a very good defense. Um, and Garcia, you know, was the quarterback. Uh, eventually during that time, um, you know, would he have been, you know, Steven won some games. I mean, you know, say what you want about him, you know, in big games, you know, Clemson game, Georgia game, Alabama, Florida, you know, Garcia showed up. And so I don't know, you know, so you can go through there. I, I, I look at it like this, and I'll look at the end of the Spurrier era, beginning of Muschamp, class of 2015. This is the biggest the biggest one recently where you go, hmm. You had Arden Key committed. You had Jair Alexander committed. Okay, you had Damon Arnett, a first-round draft pick that went to Ohio State. You had him committed. You had Mark Fields, who went to Clemson and played pretty well, uh, was never the – and Mark Fields was the highest-rated one. He, he didn't outplay the other two uh, eventually, you know, in time. But he's pretty good. You know, you could have – Carolina could have definitely used this guy. You know, so here you, you look at the defenses moving forward. There's a pass rusher you desperately needed. There's two corners and a safety you needed or three corners that you needed. Um you know, in that in that defensive backfield. And uh, Alexander went to Louisville, Arnett, Ohio State, and Fields to Clemson. And, you know, Arden Key went to LSU. So, you know, the, those are the ones you look back. Because that, that 2015 class ended up not being horrible. Uh, it was kind of a rebound class for that staff because I think in the 2014 football season – they started realizing, hey, we need some talent. Um, and, and look, they got – it was the 20th-ranked class in the country. Uh, you know, Dante Sawyer, A.J. Turner was in that class. Uh, Mon Denson was in that class, ended up playing well. Daniel Fennell played through. You know, and then there were some – got Blake Camper, Ulrich Jones, Rashad Fenton. So you also had Rashad Fenton in this class if you want to talk about uh, defensive backs. Kyle Markway was in the class. Um we also had some guys that were disappointing. Um, Shamik Blackshear, you know, I, I would say Marcavius Lewis is disappointing, but, you know, and he was from the sense of, you know, you think top Juco DN in the country, you beat Auburn on him. You know, he's going to come in and make some noise. He did. He was very good. He was a starter, 
just not a difference maker, I think, for the most part. Zach Bailey was in that class, certainly made a difference. But then he had a Jalen Christian, didn't do much. Uh, you know, Christian Pellage obviously didn't do much. You beat Florida on him. Uh, Dexter Weidman, you flipped him from Florida State uh, or, or got him back after he'd signed with Florida State and went to Camden Military. He did nothing. We all, you all know about Lorenzo Nunez, DJ Neal, you know, Tory Boyd, Boozy Whitlow. Those were all guys that didn't necessarily survive the transition uh, from Spur to Muschamp. But you did have some good players there. If you'd have thrown these four in it, you know, you probably wouldn't have gotten Rashad Fenton probably would have gone to Louisville. Uh, but, you know, it, it was a pretty decent class, all things considered. You, you know, there were some busts, but, um, you know, th- this could have been a class had they gotten those guys to where at least the start of the Muschamp era is not a, not as rocky uh, personnel-wise. Um you know, if those guys would have come, especially in the secondary, especially in the secondary. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. So, so those are the guys I look back on and I'm like, man, they had the makings of a really, really good class on the other end of it. Uh, and that just didn't happen. So thanks, Mitchell, for your question. Sean says, JC, do you ever foresee a scenario where the revenue gap closes between all the power five schools, the Big Ten and SEC, are lapping over other conferences. And I've seen complaints on Twitter from ACC and Big 12 fans about the disparity. If not, will this force realignment amongst those conferences? Saw a bunch of ACC fans hypothetically wanting to court Texas and Oklahoma. Loaded question, I know. I I don't know. I mean, you know, the Big 12 and ACC are kind of leagues that they don't have the – well, there's different problems with different leagues. The, the, the problem with the ACC right now is it's a one-school league with Clemson, and then you got everybody else trying to catch up. And, and you think Florida State's probably going to be back at some point. You know, they're recruiting well again. I think Mike Norvell is a coach that, you know, as he grows, that program will grow. Uh, I think North Carolina, obviously, with what they're doing in recruiting – uh, and then they're winning on the field. They have a chance in that other division to be really good. And, you know, I think Georgia Tech's going to be back. Uh, it may be another year or two because that's just kind of the hole they were in. Um, Virginia's done some good things. Virginia Tech with Fuente, what's going to happen there? So there's all these questions at the schools in the big in the ACC that should be good. Um, and you also have, you know, you, you add Pitt, Syracuse, and Boston College. Now, all three of those schools have – outstanding football history. I mean, Boston College for years has been like the little guy that'll beat you. Uh, Syracuse, Donovan McNabb, and Jim Brown played there, you know, and they're the team with the dome. (laughs) Uh, Pittsburgh was a national championship contender, won it in the 70s. Uh, I think most some older Gamecock fans will remember the 1980 Gator Bowl where Tony Dorsett and Dan Marino – I think Dan Marino was on that team, was he? It was at least Dorsett. Yeah, they beat the tar out of the Gamecocks, thirty-seven to nine. Yeah, Gamecocks used to play Pitt just about every other year. So, so, so those those schools that were intended to stretch the market north uh, are kind of in a spiral of irrelevance. And then Boston College doesn't move the needle a whole lot. So, you know, whereas if you're in the Big Twelve and you're looking at the Dallas and Houston television markets, and you're like, well, this is college football country down here. If you're the ACC, New York's helping. 
Boston's helping, you know, just like New Jersey Rutgers is helping New Jersey. Uh, but it's a tougher deal. Um, and, and I think that's the problem fundamentally with the ACC. Now the ACC does have a trump card with their basketball. I mean, that's a, that's a valuable commodity. Uh, and they got the ACC network and, and all that, and that'll grow. I, I think the pandemic, you know, has hurt some more than others. And I think the Atlantic Coast Conference probably hurt a little more than others. You just launched the, you just launched the ACC network. You're trying to get it in homes. You know, it's it's tough. It's tough because it's not as uh, – there are pockets of, of hardcore fandom in the ACC for sure. Um, and in 2016, I thought it was the best top to bottom. They, in that year, best league in the country. You know, so and, and you look at the NFL numbers, the ACC is usually right behind the SEC because it's so it's not an, you know, there's not, you know, there's no reason why it can't be a, a good conference. The problem is, is like there's just inconsistency. You know, Florida State was the consistent program for a long time and dominated, and now Clemson is. And you sort of went through a, a period where Clemson was not up yet and Florida State was kind of trending up and down and up and down. And, you know, that's when your your Wake Forest won it and Virginia Tech won quite a few. And then Boston College was in the, the ACC title game and all that. Um, and that for a league that was supposed to be Florida State and Miami, uh, for, for it to be Virginia Tech and Boston College or Georgia Tech and Wake Forest, for those years in their title game, that, that had to hurt. That's why they moved it back to Charlotte because they originally had it in Tampa and Jacksonville thinking you're going to get Knowles and Canes, and that's a, that's a big-time deal. And it just didn't turn out that way. Um, you know, the Big 12, their issues are different because of the Longhorn Network in Texas. That's why the Big 12 almost fell apart to begin with. That's why Missouri and Colorado and Nebraska – and Texas A&M left because really, you know, you have an equal distribution in the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and the SEC. And, you know, when one school's got its own network and gets to keep all the money, <laughs> that's not good, you know. And, and Oklahoma and Texas in that league, you know, they're kind of, you know, what they say sort of goes, especially Texas. And – um and so if you're the rest of the league, you know, you are, uh, you're a little bit jealous, I guess. I don't know. It's just unfair. It's just unfair. And then, you know, you kind of look at it. I mean, it's hard to, I mean, in a lot of ways with Oklahoma winning six straight big 12 titles, the, you know, that league's sort of a, a one team league. I mean, everybody trashes the Pac-12. Now, the Pac-12 has completely different issues. Now, the Pac-12 uh, decided to start their own network. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, it didn't work. <laughs> and they, they just, they've been hard-pressed to compete in the Eastern time zone. Uh, and then you have the fact, too, that the Pac-12 is a probably top-to-bottom I'd say it's equal to the Big 12, top to bottom. There's just not a there's not a dominant team. So, you know, every you have Oregon, and then you have SC will jump up and win it, and then Washington, and then Utah's in the mix, and then everybody's got one or two losses. 
And, and so, like with the Big 12 and ACC, Clemson and Oklahoma have been getting the playoff pretty regularly. Well, it's Washington, I think, in 2016 was the last team to get to it uh, from the Pac-12. So they haven't even had a playoff team. So that's that's, you know – that's a little bit of an issue. So we'll see what happens there. But, you know, the next round of expansion could be interesting. It could be a nothing burger. I, I don't think there's a groundswell of, of, of desire right now. I think there'll be certain schools unhappy with their situation that would listen. But, you know, last, last time, I mean, they were talking about lopping off half the Big 12 and taking it to the Pac-12 you know, Texas and Texas A&M included. So what would things look like now if that had happened? Um, and really, you know, ended up being that as long as Texas got its Longhorn Network, they were happy with the Big 12. So uh, it should be interesting to see here in the coming years. Um, Noah says, uh, JC, since Carolina's recruiting in more northern states, what do you think about scheduling home-and-home matchups with Maryland, Rutgers, and Penn State? Obviously, those matchups will be far off, but I think – Something new for Carolina football and helpful in recruiting to play Big Ten opponents. I, I like it. I mean, I, I love the idea of going to Maryland. That's in D.C. You know, that's right there where Carolina recruits a lot. Uh, it, it is now a Big Ten team. It used to be an ACC rival. I, I think uh, going to Rutgers and having Rutgers come to Carolina would be a good thing. I mean, I think you know, right there in the New York City area, a lot of alums. Uh, and then Penn State, you know, that, that's one of those classic home and homes, you know, you, you'd probably like to see happen just because it's such a tradition rich place. And, you know, you, you'd go there and, you know, they'd come to Carol- Columbia probably, you know, I, and I know, I know some Gamecock fans don't like James Franklin. I've never really figured out why. Maybe it was because you know, he was winning at Vandy when, you know, South Carolina was winning big and all that. Maybe it's for off the field things that happened at Vandy. I don't know. But uh, I, I don't know that James Franklin will be at Penn State if they got that scheduled for the 2030s. You know, I don't know if he'll still be there then or not. Um, I think I think if the right gig comes along, I think he would move on. But that's just me speculating uh, and kind of hearing behind-the-scenes things. So, yeah, I, I'd like any, any of those three. I, I, I think that would be good. I think Ohio State would be a good home-and-home home for Carolina to schedule up. You know, I think – it it may be tough to get the Buckeyes to agree to it because if, if they beat South Carolina twice, that's, you know, what does that do for them as opposed to playing in Oklahoma or Alabama uh, right now? I don't know. But, um, you know, it, it's worth a shot. It's not like uh, the Gamecocks are chopped liver. They're a power five team uh, from the SEC. So, uh, you know, we can see what happens there. But, yeah, I, I like those. Noah, those are great ideas. Hudson says, JC, now that the spring is over, how impressed are you with how Coach Beamer has held the team together? I know we basically lost the whole DB room, which was expected. But besides that, I'm very impressed with the lack of attrition to the team. I'm very impressed with the lack of attrition to the team. I know there's still time, but it seems like the entire team has bought into the new staff. Yeah, and that's what one of the things I was mentioning earlier, and I kind of got sidetracked when we were talking about coaching attrition, is, you know, Carolina has not – I mean, I, I just read through the 2015 class. Okay, that was Spurrier's last full class, right? Uh, who made it through? Marquavis Lewis made it through. Zach Bailey made it through. Uh, Dante Sawyer made it through. That's 
three of the top six, seven, four of the top eight, four of the top nine, four of the top 10, 11, 12, five of 13, five of 14, six of 15, six of 16, six of 17, seven of 18, eight of 19, nine of 20, nine of 21, nine of 22, nine of 23, 10 of 24, 10 of 25, 10 of 26, 11 of 27 in that last Spurrier class uh, made it through. Now, right now, the last Muschamp class, which was also in the top 20, 19th, one guy is left so far, Micaiah Scott. Now, there could be some other guys that leave. Don't get me wrong. And I guess, I mean, Colin Hill technically had another year and counted. Uh, I guess he left but with eligibility left and went pro. But most of this group is still there. I mean, Jordan Burch is still there. Marshawn Lloyd is still there. Luke Doty is still there. Mo Caba, Eric Shaw, who I heard some good things about this weekend. Uh, Rico Powers, all the Jaheim Bell. Uh, and that's important. I mean, you know, say what you want about some of these guys. You know, some of them are going to be starters. Some of them are going to be key reserves. But, you know, the, the bottom line is it's better to have numbers than not because once you start looking at a spot and you're like, well, you're going to have to play some walk-ons there a lot, you know, that's a little bit different. So, We'll see sort of what happens uh, moving forward. But uh, right now, that's a lot better number than that 11 of 27 for Spurrier's last class. And, you know, I, I'd be lying if I told you that when, when they made the transition, that wasn't a concern because, you know, it wasn't just the players that left that loved Will. I mean, a lot of those guys, I mean, really, you don't hear anything bad about Will Muschamp. The environment was not good, and I, I suppose that, that st- the buck stops with him because he's the head coach, but uh, guys didn't leave. And, and they bought into what the new staff was saying. And um, and that's been tremendous because a big key uh, for Muschamp, getting from three wins to six that first year, was that the guys left over bought in. And now they had a lot of first-year guys that were their guys too, especially on offense. Uh, and obviously replacing – uh, Orth and McElwain with Jake Bentley was a big key to kind of getting that thing running. Receivers getting healthy. Rico Dowdle emerging as a running back threat. You know, that all helped. But, um, you know, the, the Spurrier guys never lost faith. You know, guys like Chris Lamonts that played their butts off all the time. Bryson Allen Williams played his butt off all the time. TJ Holloman played his butt off. I mean, you know, th- those guys, Taylor Stallworth, those cats all brought it. You know, and it, you know, that season, that was not a great team. That team probably had no business going to a bowl. But, you know, they fought and fought and were resilient, and the schedule wasn't all that difficult, and they ended up winning six. Unfortunately, lost a shootout in the Birmingham Bowl. But, you know, the fact they got there was a great accomplishment in a year one. And so you're looking at this year one. Now, the Muschamp situation was going in was a year zero because – you're looking at how many freshmen they're going to have to depend on. Now those freshmen stepped up. Jake stepped up. Rico stepped up. Brian Edwards stepped up. Uh, you know, Chavis Dawkins to a certain extent stepped up that year. Hayden Hurst got really better at tight end as the year went on, turned into a star. Uh, you know, defensively, Jamarcus King, who was up and down and, you know, 
those of you always want to remember the Mike Williams dragging him into the end zone, that's fine. But you also have to remember uh, the plays he made against Tennessee to help win that game, the plays he made against East Carolina to help win that game. Um, you know, he, he made a, he made a difference at times in a positive manner. Um, and so, you know, you, you look at this year, I, I don't, for Beamer, and I, I think they tell you it, it's a, it's a roster they've inherited that has, again, has holes, defensive backfield holes, wide receiver, big hole, linebacker, potentially big hole. Um, and that's tough because that's the back seven on your defense. You know, you're talking about there if you're not that good, but uh, there are some, I mean, it's not like their cupboard is completely bare. <laughs> uh, and it kind of starts, you know, with the fact that they've retained guys. And, you know, that that's part of it, especially, you know, and, and look, it'd be a different story if you had guys that, you know, couldn't play dead in a movie. You know, and you're sitting there going, this guy can't play. We probably need to, you know, part ways with him. But, you know, they're, they're really good players. I mean, you know, and, and with the portal and the new rules and everything like that, I mean, it, 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 it'd be easy for a Jordan Birch or Marshawn Lloyd or a Luke Doty or, you know, Muhammad Kaba just to say, peace, I'm out. Uh, and they didn't. And they didn't. You know, does it suck to lose John Dixon and Jamie Robinson? Yes. Uh, you know, Kier Thomas, I don't blame him because he's been in Carolina five years and you get that extra year because of COVID. Why not go? You know, he was committed to Florida State early and then they backed off. And so, obviously, he has an affinity for Florida State University. And if they want him, why not go down there and play your final year to the school you wanted to go to at the start in your home state and uh, try to help restart that thing? I mean, I, I don't – Thomas, I didn't I didn't blame for – and I don't really blame Robinson and Dixon either. They, uh, you know, they kind of took off right away. But, uh, you know, you can't blame them. I mean, we'll see what Dixon does at Penn State. I'm sure he's doing well. And – you know, Robinson, obviously, Florida State feels really good about him because he's a really good player. Um, but, you know, it'd been easy for some of these other guys to take off too, and they didn't. And, and I think that's, you know, job one of a new staff coming in, inheriting a situation like this, is to get everybody feeling good again about being a part of everything, get everybody feeling positive and confident again, and then you go from there. And uh, so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about everything there uh, in your email. All right, that's all the time. Told you it was going to be short today that we have for today inside the Gamecast podcast. Don't forget, you want to get in the mailbag. Uh, to, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I almost forgot. <laughs> uh, Dodder Bob had a Twitter question. So not going to, not, we're going to read this one. I said I read all the mailbag questions. And I forgot because I did the I did the inbox first. Inbox is inside the game at gmail.com. Twitter is tweet to at the big spur pod. And he says, if you could give Beamer some suggestions to improve the home field advantage at Williams Price, what would that be? Well, I, I, I you know, okay, so there was a question on the board that okay, what you know. What can be done to keep the students at the game? So my idea was at the top of the Floyd building or in that area, build a beer garden, you know, make it sort of exclusive. In other words, you know, you get scanned if you're a student for using your tickets. The, the more times you use the tickets and stay the entire time. And, and, and I'm, I don't know how you enforce this. It'll make my head hurt to, 
to go into the how do you you know scan everybody when they leave and stuff um you know so so what i'm saying is do this it's uh you know you can build a beer garden up there for students exclusively limited 200 it could be like the gamecock party deck or whatever put it in that end zone where they're at anyway and i, I think those guys would be very involved and fired up it'd be a little you know, South Carolina specific tradition. And then that gives people motivation for staying. I think the other thing you could do is depending on what you do with the Floyd building in that area, let's say you just build, you know, some premium seats kind of like, it's not going to be as big as the the West zone at Clemson or the zone at Carolina, but a, but a similar premium seat area. Uh, I would move the visitors to that end zone where they used to be. Long, long time ago, they used to be there, and um, and then put the student entrance on the other side in that corner where the visiting section is now. Because guess what? <laughs> That's the loudest corner of the stadium, <laughs> and if you have the students there and the band there and and everybody down on that end, you know that that end zone that Mike Leach called the loudest place in the world when he was an OC at Kentucky back in the late nineties, you know, you put all your chips to the middle of the table in that section. Uh, and then on the open area and just let the, the visiting fans sound grow out. Uh, I think that's smart. I mean, I've always, and I, and, and that's not something that coach Beamer is going to be able to do. That's a Ray Tanner and uh, athletics administration deal but that's something i've advocated for for 20 something years uh and so that would be if you ask me what could you improve the home field advantage besides you know the little things like you know if Car- carolina probably needs to get those led lights like everybody else they're kind of cool recruits like them I-, I think the sound system needs to be overhauled including like the the uh the plan for the sound system during the game um it's a little bit a little bit different than, than other spots, but you know, but those are little things concessions, obviously for you guys that go every single game, I feel for you that concessions have been bad. Uh, I do think that's something that the administration hears about and is working on. Uh, But you know, those, those are, to me, those are minor things. You want to make a big move, you know, build the students a deck uh, over in, in their end zone, leave them where they're at if you want to. In that case, uh, make it kind of nice, make it a special area, and then you know you you obviously can motivate them to stay the whole game, uh, or move them into the loud corner of the end zone uh, with the band and everybody, and then put the visitors over there and put some premium seating up there instead of in lieu of a party deck. Maybe it's still a party deck. Maybe it's just for everybody else. I don't know, but um. You know, that, that would be what I would say if I were to sit down with anybody in South Carolina and how to Im- improve the home field advantage. I, I think another thing, obviously, is win. <laughs> uh, you know, that's uh, winning cures all in South Carolina. Uh, if you think back during the Spurrier era, I don't know that the concessions were better than or the sound system was better than or not, but Williams Bryce was – loud and one of the toughest places in America to come into and win. That's because the team was winning. And I think it, to a certain extent, it still is. Uh, on, when people are fired up and ready to go, it still is. So, 
you know, we'll see what happens there. All right, now it's over. Uh, again, at the Vicksburg Pod, tweet to me or email me at insidethegamecocks at gmail.com. We'll have more as we move on this week. Thank you for listening. This is J.C. Sherbert. It's been Inside the Gamecocks Podcast. Holler at you soon.